Welcome to the HR Lounge. Sit back and listen in as Diane and I interview HR professionals from all walks in life. We'll be exploring all things HR related. You know the ones, those deep and sometimes uncomfortable conversations that should take place, but unfortunately never really happen. Enjoy your time with us in the HR Lounge. Hello and welcome to the HR Lounge. Today, our guest is Roger Klein, Research Fellow of the Middlesex University. Welcome, Roger. Hi, nice to be here. Before we go into sort of like uh, questions, just going back on how we met. And I know um, we've known each other for quite a while, Roger. Um, We met through a mutual friend. Um, and that was a time when I was subjected to bullying and harassment in the workplace. You res- you supported me through throughout that process, and you know you went on to um, support me and write the foreword for my book, Journey to Empowerment: Tackling the Bullies Within. So I'm ever grateful to your knowledge, your skills, and expertise. Diane, how did you meet Roger? Um, we had a Twitter encounter actually. Um, I um, saw some of the things that he was sharing and there was a, a lot of synergy or the things that he was saying and versus what I was saying. So it was all about um, positive action, being supportive. And uh, I just connected with him and I thought he was, he was a good person to connect with. Uh, thereafter, I think I met him at the res, um, I think it was in 2017. And that was only just a very brief meeting. I think I just managed to just say hello. He was so busy because I think uh, you were presenting on that day, Roger. And um, subsequent to that, we then met up in Euston Station. We had uh, a coffee or a water. I can't quite remember. Yeah. And we had a lovely chat. And again, we had a good conversation and um, we just built from there. And the final, well, for me, which was um, quite amazing, Roger offered to um, present at the RISE conference, uh, which was absolutely amazing. I was really quite, I was really um, honoured that you said yes, Roger, because um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you're quite a great person and, uh, you know, you've got a lot going on for you. So I was really, you know, really appreciated that you did that and thank you um, for doing so. Yeah, no, you've impacted so many people's lives, Roger. And, you know, you know Diane and I really appreciate you. First question. Tell us about your career journey, because we know that there's been a lot of things that you've been doing that people don't know about. So um, I would say the most important part of my career journey is my parents. So my mum was a working class Jewish woman in the East End. We went through her school records. It's quite clear she was a feminist from the age of 12, uh, refused almost to do things like typing, cooking, handwriting skills uh but was top of the class at geography english and maths my dad was also a rebel they were both jewish at the age of 16 he went to work at 14 at the age of 16 he perfected a safe way of working in an upholstery factory which nearly caused industrial action and he got sacked at the age of 16. so i think i kind of they were both role models in different ways for me they were very ambitious for myself and my brother and um yeah they've always been supportive whatever we've done when my brother went off to become a musician they were really disappointed that he kind of 
didn't want to do something that was more obviously had a career path, but they were so proud that he became a, like, a fantastic jazz musician. With me, you know, they, they were always, always supportive. I learned a lot from, I, I worked for six years in a factory in Massey Ferguson's in Coventry, where I became a senior shop steward. Subsequent to that, I, I worked for eight different trade unions, which I'm told is a UK record, three compromise agreement when I fell out with general secretaries. And the advantage of working for lots of different organisations is you learn a lot. Each time you move, you realise what you've learned from the last one, even if all the experiences weren't great. So then I sort of retired and became um, a researcher. I'd always led for some of these unions on equality. But if I'm honest, I knew what I was against. I wasn't clear what I was for. So that's how I ended up where I am. And then accidentally, I stumbled into racism in the health service, which I'd yeah. seen for a long time because my wife is a nurse, black nurse. And then I started to dig into that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Wow. And that goes on quite nicely to um, the next question, which is, um, how has your experience as a union representative help to shape your passion in highlighting, tackling discrimination and racism? Trade, trade unions, they were born out of injustice and were born out of a collective response to injustice. Some of the trade union reps and officials I've met have been the most fantastic people I've ever known, but uh, I don't think unions have ever really got their heads around equality. And more recently, in the last 15, 20 years, I would say trade unions have significantly lost their way in terms of how they handle th those issues they have increasingly found it hard to move beyond in taking up individual cases mm -hmm. rather than proactive and preventative and dealing with the root causes and i'm i must spend a fair bit of time giving pro bono advice to people who either have been let down by trade unions or actually decided in, on the basis of experience of colleagues they weren't even going to go there the root problem for trade unions is they come in too late they're too focused on the individual case and too often never deal with the root cause they end up doing a deal for the person to get them out of the situation but the problem that was raised is still there so um, i think you know trade unions have a lot to learn mm. there's a lot of really good people work for them yeah. but you know it's all like all occupations. Yeah. It's pretty patchy and there's lots of people there. In my, in my view, if I'd been the head of some of the unions, um, I think I'd have been thinking about these. some of these people should be mm. taking a different career Definitely. move. Definitely. Mm. I, I would agree. Can I actually say that I, um, I remember coming to you um, because I was coaching a lady who was having a problem with her union because her union wouldn't take up her case. And she is actually, you know, She's not just the only one. I've been hearing about other situations where unions seem to be turning a blind eye. And I'm personally thinking, and you know, you tell me if I'm wrong, that these generally are issues around race. So I don't think it's just about race. I see it on bullying, bullying of white staff, on whistleblowing, on disciplinary action generally. But it is, it is true that there seems to be a real challenge uh, when it comes to black and minority ethnic staff, the majority of cases that come to me uh, are from a staff of BME heritage. And the, the union never deals with more than the symptoms. For example, I, I'm constantly surprised at the lack of understanding of how you demonstrate 
that racism has happened. In other words, what's, what's, the, what's the burden of proof? Too often, it's not just reps, but uh, officials are confused about what you have to demonstrate mm. in order to show that racism has existed. There's insufficient use of the data that now exists mm. because of race. There's too little asking, are other, have other people been affected by the same sort of thing? When I was an official, the first question I would always ask anybody is, has anybody else that you know yeah. of had a similar experience, either in the past or now? Mm. Because it's so much easier if there's more than one person, it's not then one person's word against another. There's a real challenge there. I think, I think the smaller unions tend to be better but some of the big unions, I'm afraid, really, that really seem to struggle. Not not all officials, but too many of them. I just wanted to ask, um, did I know anything about employment law? Do they have any understanding? Yes. Well, it's supposed to. In some unions, I've worked for unions where, where the union official ran employment tribunals. Um, certainly there's, there's training for officials. But there's a... There's too often, not always, there's too often an inability to recognise early on what's happening. And the truth with issues of uh, poor treatment, bullying, whistleblowing, discrimination, discipline, is that unless you get in really early, and if possible, informally, you're stuck with a very time-consuming case, which becomes increasingly complex. Loads, of, I've, been to, I've been to hearings with, where I had to take a shopping trolley of paperwork with me. Wow. So people think, officials think, hey, uh, this is a heap of work. The really good officials are really, really busy. Other officials don't seem to be busy. Um, are certainly not busy in the same way. Um, the final thing I would say, I would never ever talk to HR or a manager without the permission of the individual. Because if you do that, you break trust. If you break trust, you're going nowhere. I'm constantly surprised how often that happens. Yeah, and that, that thanks for that, Roger and, and um, Diane. I quite caught up with the fact that you said that uh, unions have lost their way. I quite, I quite like that because it highlights a whole raft of things. You know, and people's perceptions of unions back then to what they are now and and your understanding and your knowledge and and what's happening in today's arena where bullying and harassment is rife with the pandemic it's almost tripled in cases and the unions seem to be struggling how differently was it back then where things were dealt with to what's happening now well, I was wary of suggesting of some golden age because whenever we look back, we always think things were better than they actually were at the time. Uh, and I would say that even today, some officials are fantastic. Some unions really working hard to get this stuff right. Dare I say it, some of the smaller unions tend to be better than some of the bigger unions, particularly where they represent a particular occupation or a profession. Um, I think it's made, made harder. There's less union reps. There's less facility time for reps. Staff as a whole work harder. The law is not very helpful, that's to put it mildly. So it all comes to, and the, the, you know, and it's just harder in a time of austerity to win. So put all that together, unless trade unions are really proactive, preventative, triangulating information, you know, looking for to turn individual disputes into collective ones and collective issues, 
often actually it will be to the benefit of the employer if those issues were flushed out. Um, unless that happens, just end up chasing lots and lots of individual cases. And that's soul destroying for the individuals. It's really hard work for the officials and the reps. And, in, and if, it, if on issues like bullying and race, it's hard to tell what a win looks like. So on bullying, even if you win a grievance, which is very unlikely, actually, it's quite likely the person will lose. They'll either have to move on or be very remarked as a troublemaker, similarly with race. Even if you win a race case, you often have to move on because you're seen as a difficult person. Very rarely do people who win these cases get promoted. Absolutely. Yeah, that is so soul destroying. And, and it, 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 actually, it actually lends um, a lot of questions around individuals that have paid their dues and don't get that duty of care from the union. They feel unfulfilled. They feel disappointed, but they're also fractured as a result of it. Um, and, and, you know, we know of certain individuals that have actually been paying into the union and the unions have sort of gone into hiding and not not responded. You know, so there's the other side to it where the individual who's already been bullied or harassed doesn't get the support as well either. You know, I would say yeah, there are some very good officials and there are some unions that are much better than others. I think at the root of it is that they have followed the HR paradigm, which is if we put in place the right policies, the right procedures and the right training, somehow or other that sets a standard and it makes it safe for people to raise concerns. And trade unions are being drawn into that process because there's no, you can't lodge class actions, for example, in this country. And that's made it much harder. It makes it much easier to individualise it unless the official right from the start is really clear. This looks like a collective issue. Let's deal with it. Um, and, and too often that doesn't happen. It does happen sometimes, but too often it doesn't. Well, you um, mentioned the NHS uh, briefly. Um, you wrote a snowy white peak for the NHS back in 2014, I believe. And more recently, after the, spe- sorry, after the speeches, what now for the NHS staff on race discrimination published by British Medical Journey, Journal? Sorry. Do you feel there have been any uh, significant changes or improvements across the, the um, equality, diversity and inclusion arena? I'm going to sound like a politician. Uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> so if you take race in the health service, which is probably the issue that I'm now m- most familiar with, I would say that the impact of res has, uh, on some issues, has been very significant, on others has been totally insignificant. For example, as a result of uh, the res data being available and as a result of people challenging and changing their HR paradigm policies, procedures and training between what Mersey Care trusted with their just culture approach and what I suggested to a number of London trusts, the approach to discipline change such that in the last three years there's 28% less disciplinary cases in the NHS and the gap between the treatment of the likelihood of white and BME staff entering disciplinary processes has been more than half from 1.56 to 1.16. So in that sense, there's some significant improvement. But if you take recruitment, because people are just doing the same old, same old, there is no significant improvement on recruitment. And that's why something that I'm going to be publishing, which I think may be quite widely picked up in the next few weeks, is the entire paradigm model 
of how we approach recruitment and career progression has to change because what we've been doing, it's not just that it hasn't worked, it was never going to work according to the research. Mm. Well, that that um, that leads nicely on to you mentioned the res. You played a significant role in the creation of the NHS res infrastructure. You wrote back in February that the NHS England's res program needs a reboot to bring serious accountability and evidence based interventions to the issue. What needs to be done in your um, eyes for this to actually happen and be effective? What should have happened? As the first two years were bedding it in, making sure the data is collected, um, checking it, making sure it's reliable, uh, and using that for organisations and the NHS to identify what were the problems, how they were going about go about them, and then should have started moving on immediately into answering the how question, not just the why question. Reasons that led me to leave the res team: there was a determination to keep focusing on the why and not. Not, and almost nothing on the how. So that's why the work on discipline that worked was done outside of the res team. And that's why we went, we went nowhere really with the work on recruitment because nobody was paying attention to it. So I'm hoping now that, you know, we all make mistakes. I'm hoping now, so this is, this is a little bit of hindsight, but I did do it at the time. If you look at the 2017 report, the, there's a new team. They're really, they're really keen to push in that sort of direction, emphasize accountability, look for evidence-based interventions, because, because we do not spend enough time and have not spent enough time asking one simple question. If you're going to draw up this action plan, could you please tell us why you think it's likely to work? If you can't answer that question, why are we doing it? We wouldn't let a doctor do it if they were tackling MRSA. We'd expect them to know why they thought it was going to work. We haven't been doing that with initiatives on bullying, on race, on gender, actually, uh, and so on. So that's the big change. Evidence-based interventions, better accountability. Stop going around making people feel guilty. Challenge them, hold them to account. Yeah, accountability. Yeah, uh, that leads us quite, perfect, quite perfectly to some of the questions I'm going to ask you next which was that you were one of the first people that we showed our Transforming Vice Change Programme to um, because we felt that we wanted to have you know, your feedback. Uh, so before the launch, at the time, you had mentioned to us that um, recruitment was an issue. Now, you've touched on that already, but if you want to add a little bit more in terms of, you know, do you think there is more to do? In your opinion, what do you think that would look like? Bias stereotypes assumptions uh, and behaviors all, all wrapped up together are really powerful people are often not even aware that they're doing them they're often shocked when it's pointed out to them that's the impact of what they've done this is quite subtle stuff so it will include things like assumptions about merit assumptions about can this candidate hit the road running assumptions about black managers achievements are more like more due to their colleagues than to other people so understanding bias is really important I, I think the mistake people have made is to jump therefore and say if we just do training that's going to change decision making stuff that increases people's understanding of bias 
which is then linked to evidence-based interventions around changing processes is likely to work. Stuff that just stops at diversity training or stops at kind of online uh, training and so on is never going to work. The research, research is really clear on that. So it's useful, it can improve people's cognitive understanding. That's important if you're sitting on a panel or you're driving talent management, but not to think that's the only thing. So your, yeah. stuff, your stuff is helpful in that respect. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Because, you know, I think that really, in a nutshell, is exactly why we decided to do what we wanted to do with the programme, because it's so important that it is embedded within the organisation to be able to make a change, not just become, unfortunately, that terrible a phrase which is a tick box exercise absolutely and that that kind of like it, it screams volumes um of that time where we spoke at the cipd event diane where it was just full of recruitment selection people and you could see their eyes glazing over when we were sort of like outlining the fact that bias is within the infrastructure and if they don't deal with it and be impartial it's always going to continue to have the same effect and yeah, it was it was really interesting, very interesting indeed. Roger, you've you've impacted so many people's lives. Do you have a memorable moment in your career where you felt you really made a difference in your role, your responsibilities, and the people you've supported along your career journey? Yeah, there's quite a, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of individual cases. Um, I remember one of an Irish health visitor who I must have done. I must have put a couple of weeks' work into her case, and we lost. And then we lost and we finally won. And the difference it made to her life was great. But probably more important were a couple of the, the collective cases. So I led the negotiations on the Enderby case, which created the agenda for change in the health service. It was, big, it was then the biggest ever, I think, equal pay case. Um, and um, we won that uh, pretty decisively. The union, being the union had been very supportive. I happened to be the official who led the final negotiations with uh, Alan Milburn and Simon Stevens behind the scenes. And that was a pretty decisive win with big repercussions. And the other thing, I, the other one that I'm really proud of is a 12 month battle, that was the word, with what was then London Metropolitan University's vice chancellor, who took us to court three times. We had to win, I think, four ballots. It took 12 months and we won 100% so much so that the vice chancellor walked out of the final talks having handed over to somebody else who caved in <laughs> so that that was that was pretty you know and that was a case where we kept thinking we can't possibly win this and eventually we just knew that there must come a point where they cracked and they did yeah well thank you for sharing thank wow. you fantastic I, I, i'm i'm cuddlier than uh, those sorts of cases, <laughs> right. so, occasionally I've had to stand my ground. Absolutely. We believe you, Roger, we believe you. We do. What advice would you give someone who wants to support others as you have and uh, challenge and be uh, be supportive of others uh, with regards to the quality, diversity and inclusion arena? Listen, listen to people's lived experience, not just black people's lived experience, listen to lived experience, to what it's like read watch be curious know yourself you have to know yourself to some degree if you're going to want to change others um be an ally in the moment i've seen in too many situations i've been in them myself where 
you didn't say at the time what you should have done in support, what you should have said in support of somebody. And you go up to them afterwards and say, oh, really, that was terrible, Diane, really sorry about that. What I should have done was in the meeting, find a way, however quietly and politely to say, uh, I'm not sure that what's just happened should have happened. Can we just go back and replay it? So John DeMache has done a couple of really brilliant little videos on just about being supportive. It's about intervening in the moment. And finally, I, I kind of managed to work with all sorts of people on the basis that when I was younger, I used to work on the basis, if you're not with me, you're likely to be against me. Whereas now I work on the basis, if you're not against me, you might be with me. <laughs> Brilliant, like wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Like Thank you so much, Roger. You know, these nuggets of knowledge, we could sit down and talk to you and sort of like pick your brains a little bit longer, but we, we're running out of time now. But thank you so much for giving us your time to have this conversation with Diane and I. Yes, thank Diane. you very much. Very much. Thank you. It's great to know you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Lounge. We hope you find our podcast insightful. Join us next time for more thoughtful discussions. And remember, you have the power to make a difference.